Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us for the second message in our series, Broken. Lead Pastor David Fossil has us continue looking at things in our lives that might need to be rebuilt. Marriages, homes, finances, and health. He points out that the rebuilding process can be a tough job. Join us as Pastor Dave challenges us with four things we can do that will make that job much easier. Is it wrong for me to enjoy coming up to that music? I feel really good about coming up to that music. Grab your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Grab the study guide that's in your program. As you're turning there, there was a survey taken a while back, uh, and, and they tried to identify what people wanted to have rebuilt at the location of the Twin Towers in New York City. Uh, when they did this survey, about 50% of the people surveyed said that they wanted the exact same Twin Towers built, except maybe one story higher, something like that, you know, just kind of show them. Another 25% of the people surveyed said that they wanted a different kind of a building office structure built that looked a little bit different. And then the final 25% said that they didn't want a, an office building to go up at all. They wanted some sort of a memorial to go up, whether it was a memorial park or a memorial structure something along those lines. And so there was some disagreement as to what would happen at the site of the Twin Towers in New York City. However, having said that, what is fascinating is that there was complete agreement on one issue, and this was the issue. No matter what was going to be rebuilt, they all wanted something to be rebuilt. We're not going to just leave it empty. We're going to rebuild was the point of the survey. We started a brand new series last week called Broken. It's the same idea. It's the the idea of rebuilding that which is broken in our lives, rebuilding our marriages and our families, rebuilding our health, rebuilding ourselves spiritually, rebuilding our financial life, rebuilding relationships. It's identifying that which is broken and in disrepair in, in our life and intentionally doing something about it to fix it and to repair it. Now, what we're doing to get the principles is we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 1 through chapter 7. It is the story of a very ordinary guy. In fact, he was a butler. Why I mentioned the fact that he was an ordinary guy is that that's encouraging to me because you don't have to be some superstar to make a difference. He was just an ordinary guy that was willing to be used by God to fix a problem. Now, his issue, that which was broken in the book of Nehemiah, were the walls of Jerusalem. For 90 years prior to Nehemiah 1, two people had tried to rebuild the walls, and both times they'd failed. Nehemiah pulled it off in 52 days. So I'd like to suggest that he kind of, he he knows what he's doing when it comes to rebuilding things. Now, to bring you up to speed if you weren't with us last week, Nehemiah does three things when he identifies the issue and finds the problem. Number one is he sits down and he cries. He literally cries. He mourns. We talked about, you know, having a burden and following what God places on your heart. It's important. He sits down and cries. The next thing he does is he, he, he kneels and he prays. When should you pray about a problem? Answer before you do anything else. And that's a significant part of, of fixing whatever's broken in your life. So he falls down and cries. He kneels down and prays. And then the beginning of chapter 2, he stands up and he actually does something about the problem. Now, last week, Nehemiah 1 was really much more about me inspiring you and motivating you and challenging you to go for it, right? This week, shift gears a little bit. Because it's much more about me equipping you. Um, Nehemiah chapter 2, is ve- it's very practical, it's very systematic, and, but it will give you some incredibly helpful 
and practical ideas in terms of what do I do to rebuild what is broken. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 is where we start, and here's what we read. In the month of Nisan, which was April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Um, You see it emphasized on the screen. Three times in two verses, it emphasizes that Nehemiah has something that's weighing on him. He's down in the dumps. He's discouraged. And, and, it can, it, and people can tell that he's down in the dumps. Now, I spent some time talking about it last week. Let me just very quickly reiterate a principle and idea here. If you want to make a difference in life, if you want to repair things that are broken in life, sometimes it's not necessarily the person who is, who is most talented that actually gets things done. It's typically the person who cares the most. It's not the person who knows the most. Or who's most effective. It's the person who cares the most. And, and, and this is a simple but important principle. It's not just about having principles and having skills. It's about caring for your marriage and caring for your kids and caring for your church and caring for your place of employment and caring for your physical health and your spiritual health. You've got to actually care about it. It's got to mean something to you, right? Now, in this case, he could see, but the first principle that I want you to write down for the morning actually comes in the last five words of verse 2. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He was very afraid. It's an awkward place to stop the verse because the rest of the sentence carries on in verse 3. But this is the principle, if you're jotting down notes, that I want you to write down. And the principle is this. You need to move ahead in spite of your fears and your worries. At some point in time, you need to move ahead in spite of your fears and your worries. Question, why is Nehemiah afraid? Well, I mentioned one reason last week. There's three possible reasons. Reason reason number one is this. In those days, it was a capital offense to be sad in the presence of the king. Your boss may say it like this. I don't want you to bring your personal issues, your personal problems, your personal life into work. Work is for work. The rest of your life is for you to deal with personal issues. So I don't want you taking personal calls. I don't want you doing personal emails. And in some cases, depending where you work and in what situation, that may be an appropriate thing for your boss to say. In this case, they take it to the extreme. It's not just don't take personal calls at work. It's I don't even want to see it on your face. In other words, if you give give a frown and it has anything to do with your personal life, you're in deep trouble. It was a capital offense. He could lose his life. You don't rain on the king's parade. You got to put a smile on and tough it out. And so Nehemiah is afraid because he's like, "Uh uh-oh, the king saw that I'm down in the dumps and I could be in trouble. Reason number one. Reason number two why he's afraid is we're going to read it here in the next couple verses, but Nehemiah is just about ready to tell his boss, the king, Now remember, Nehemiah is a butler. He's just about ready to tell the king the following. Uh, Oh, by the way, uh, king, your foreign policy is no good. It's horrible. This is the equivalent. Late at night at the White House, the janitor's, you know, vacuuming, you know. And he gets, you know, it's 11, 11.30 at night. He goes into the Oval Office, start vacuuming. Oh, my goodness, Mr. President, I didn't know you were still here working. I'll come back. And President Obama goes, no, don't worry about it. I'm almost done. Just so the janitor keeps, keeps vacuuming, you know. And, and he gets over to the Oval, Oval Office desk, and he's right there, and President Obama's working. And the janitor says to the president of our country, by the way, 
Mr. President, I just want you to know, I, I think your foreign policy is horrible. And I brought, I, brought, uh, I brought some papers here in terms of things that you need to implement. Now, those of you who are like big Rush Limbaugh fans might go, yeah, that's what the janitor needs to do. All I'm trying to point out is this is risky. The butler doesn't say this to the king. The janitor doesn't say this to the president. You just don't do that. It's not your place. And yet that's exactly what Nehemiah is going to do. And there's one more reason. Not only is he going to tell the king that his foreign policy is bad. By the way, the foreign policy is stated in the book of Ezra. And here's what it was. Nobody is allowed to rebuild Jerusalem. That was actually the law. You're not allowed to rebuild Jerusalem. Because they were the enemy. And the king, Artaxerxes, wanted to keep the Jews just right where they were at. So he sat in the presence of the king. He's telling him to change his foreign policy. And the third thing, he's going to say to the king, uh, oh, by the way, why don't you let me go fix the problem and I want you to finance it. So you can sort of kind of see that there's reason to be afraid. He's a little bit concerned about what is going on here, right? The problem with our fears and our worries and being nervous is sometimes we allow our fear and our worry to paralyze us. We're concerned, we're worried about this, about that, about what, and we, 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 it paralyzes us. We don't do anything about the problem. We're controlled by our worries. I went to a Chinese restaurant uh, a couple months ago and I'm just about ready to pay the bill. What do you do just, just before you pay the bill? You grab one of the cookies, right? Because they bring the, the cookies with the bill. You want to see what your fortune says. I kept my fortune because it really struck me. I want to read to you the fortune that I got that day. Here's what it says. It says, do not worry. Do not worry about holding a high position. And then it says this, rather, instead, worry about, and then it was cut off. And I was like, what? What am I supposed to be worrying about? Are we going to have an earthquake? Am I going to get an Africa disease? What am I supposed to be worrying about? Are the Raiders going to move back to L.A.? Is my family going to want a cat? What? What? What is it? You know? Now, I was kind of having fun with the people I was eating with, you know? But do you know people like that? Are you maybe like that? You're concerned, you're worried about what might happen. It's not even real life. It's just what could, what might, what... It's just like, you know, stuff out there that, that, that it hasn't even happened yet. Let me ask you a question and be honest. What would your life look like if there was no worry in it? How would it look different? It's not realistic to say that you're never going to be afraid because sometimes there are situations that cause us to be Afraid. In fact, this is a very logical situation, what Nehemiah is in. But worry, when you read the New Testament, is actually listed as a sin. What would your life be like if you didn't worry? What would your family life be like? What would your financial life be like? What would your career life be like? Some of us, you know, we don't like the job we're in. We've always had a dream of doing and starting something else. But, you know, I just, I'm just worried. I don't know if I can pull it off. I'm not saying you don't prepare But some of us, our worries are controlling us. Some of us, spiritually, are not taking the next step just because we're worried. That alone. Yeah, no, I can't can't be part of a small group. No, what what if they ask me to share my opinion? What if it's wrong? I can't do that. And then, what if they ask me to pray out loud? Oh my goodness, what if I mess up? I can't be part of a small group. Tithe? I don't think so. <laughs> we could barely make ends meet now. You know, I'm worried about my finances. That's the last thing I'm going to do is put, put more money somewhere else where I can't control. 
I can't do that. Witness, share my faith to my coworker. I mean, I mean, I know they've even mentioned that they'd like to know more about God, but I'm not saying nothing. Because what if I, you know, say something that offends them and upsets them? I'm just, I'm not going to say nothing. Our worries, for some of us, are actually keeping us from taking the next step spiritually. And here's my point. If you've got something that's in disrepair in your life and you're trying to fix it, you're going to have to push through that worry. You're going to have to push through that fear and that nervousness. The key to Nehemiah 1 through 7 is the very next word. I was afraid, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to talk to my boss, the king. Some of you here, do you guys remember Popeye the Sailor Man? You guys remember that? I ask my kids about Popeye. You guys know about Popeye? Or like, what, like the chicken place? No, not the <laughs> chicken place. Some of you are too young to know about Popeye the Sailor Man. You remember Popeye the cartoons? I mean, it's pretty much the same story every cartoon. You got Popeye, you know, he's got little thin arms and he's kind of a mumbling, bumbling. I think he's got a speech impediment or something because I could never quite understand him. He's got a very awkward looking girlfriend. Would you agree with me? Olive oil. I don't know what she's doing with her hair and everything. She's like a foot taller than, than Popeye. But the point is, at some point in time, Brutus shows up and, and you know, he's the bad, the bad sailor or, or there's a problem happening. And Popeye, for like 75% of the cartoon, is very passive. He doesn't do much, you know. But finally, you know, olive, olive oil gets tied on the, on the tracks and the train is coming. And finally, at one point, Popeye always says, says the same thing. You remember that? Remember what he would say? Uh, that's all I can stand. I can stand no more. <laughs> right? And then he'd have some spinach and he'd save olive oil and everybody would be great, you know. And, that's all I can stand, I can stand no more. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. At some point in time, you just got to be sick and tired that you're sick and tired. You got to do something. I'm, I'm nervous, I don't have all that. Just, I know that. Push through anyway and see what happens. Push through, overcome your fear, overcome your worries, overcome your nervousness. Don't allow them to paralyze you. The point, the second thing that we see in this, in this chapter is Nehemiah begins to develop a thoughtful and a detailed plan. Now, I'm going to read some passages to you here, but I want to show you how throughout Scripture you see this repeated over and over and over again. Why do we plan? Well, one idea might be because God's a planner. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. Even God plans. He's planning out your life. And if we're to imitate God, maybe we should come up with plans. Proverbs chapter 4, 26 from the good news. Plan carefully what you do. If we're part of an army, the general doesn't just say, yeah, just go out into the battlefield and just start shooting at stuff. No, there's a strategy. There's a plan, right? If you're part of a basketball team, the coach doesn't say, just, just run around, do the best you can. Well, unless you're the warrior, sometimes it looks like they're doing that. Hey, just chill out. <laughs> Sorry, that was the Holy Spirit came out and said that, right? So, I'm getting booed by third service. <laughs> Normally, I mess up with first service, but you guys, come on. You know, Proverbs chapter 26, let's get back to Scripture. Proverbs 16, verse 9. We should make plans, counting on God. It says then, to direct us is the rest of the verse. To direct us. I love that verse because it, 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 it gives us both sides of the coin. To plan and to depend on God. Now, I'm going to say something that for some of you is going to sound sacrilegious, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's correct. Here it is. 
praying to God, Nehemiah chapter 1, or, or, or what I should say is this, planning is just as important as praying. Planning, Nehemiah chapter 2, is just as important as praying, Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, last week when we talked about praying, some of you instinctively were like, amen, you go, pastor, you preach on, because some of us got to get better at that. For some of us, prayer is just tacked on to a meal just before we eat. It's tacked on to the end of the day. You know, maybe we pray along with the pastor Sunday morning, and prayer is not a part of our life, and it needs to be part of our life. So last week was a big deal for some of us, and we need to go back there. However, some of us that may be very good at the praying part are ignoring the planning part. Have you ever bumped into a Christian that does something or says something like this? Oh, I'm so excited what God's doing. We're going to take that mountain. We're going to conquer this. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. I'm so excited. Oh, I'm excited for you too. What, 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 how are you going to make that happen? What are your plans? And then they give you one of these. Yeah, we're just, we're just trusting the Lord. Praise Jesus. <laughs> Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? It might sound spiritual, but the book of Proverbs would call it foolish. It's just plain foolish. Planning is just as important as praying. And some of us may need to think through and actually write out what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. Look at Nehemiah's answer in verse 6. You see by his answer that he hasn't just been praying for the last five months. He's been praying and he's been planning. Verse 6. The king, uh, Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. And because of the gracious hands of my, gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So, verse 9, I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters, and the king had also sent army officials and cavalry with me. Now, Nehemiah, in this chapter, in this passage, asks for three things. Three things. This is what he asked for. Let's put it on the screen. He asked for, first of all, permission, then protection, finally provision. Let's just go through it right quick. Permission. Yeah, boss, um, I, I, I got an issue. I got a problem. Um, can I go take care of it? Now... The king, he's no dummy. He's not just king because of the bloodline. He's smart. So he asks one of his employees, how long is this project going to take? Pretty good question. Now, we're told in chapter 2 that Nehemiah gives him a time. He sets a time. In chapter 5, we're told how long that time takes. Now, there were three phases to what Nehemiah wanted to do in Jerusalem. The first couple of chapters only talk about phase 1, which was the building project. The walls. But there were also two other phases. You had the political project where he had to get everything back in line because there was all kinds of political corruption. And then the spiritual project where he had to bring people back in line under under God's God's control and obedience. So you got the building project, the political project, and the spiritual project. That's everything that he wants to do. The king asks him, how long is this going to take? Do you want to know how long it takes from Nehemiah chapter 5? Twelve years. Twelve years. How does that conversation go with your boss? Yeah, I want to take a leave of absence for like 12 years. Maybe you can get a temp, you know, and I'll come back in 12 years. 
He asked for permission for 12 years to be gone, right? This guy's, you know, wow. Protection. He asked for protection. What's with the letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? What is going on here? Think about it. He's in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. He's got to travel all the way to Jerusalem. That's a distance of about 1,000 a, a miles. Now, he's going to be traveling through all these other different countries and lands. What he's asking for here is, can I have some visas? Can I have some documentation showing all these other kings and leaders that I have your approval to travel? So they don't give me a difficult time. In fact, the last verse implies that he also asked for the cavalry and army to go with him for protection. So he asked for permission, he asked for protection, and then he asked for provision. In verse, what verse is it? He's he's asking in verse 8, may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest? Commentators say that just for him to come up with that name required a lot of work, a lot of homework, a lot of research. He couldn't just Google it. He had to figure out who was in charge of the king's forest. And he says, uh, King, just real quick, I need to be gone for 12 years. If you can give me some visas, that would help. And oh, by the way, can I have some lumber? Do you mind paying for the project? If you can give me a work order to ASAF, that he can give me some, you know, you know, some, some lumber so I can build all these things, the wall, the city, and my house. That would be very, very helpful to me. That's what he asked for. One of the things that if I have been encouraged by in my study of the book of Nehemiah, I plan to do this in December. So I'm planning ahead, trying to give Joy some of the ideas of what's coming up so he can do his stuff. And So I, I'm planning on doing Nehemiah. But it wasn't until mid-January that I realized how applicable the book of Nehemiah is because it so closely mirrors what we're going through as a church. When I went to Africa, here was the deal. We find a building, we're going to rent it. We're going to lease it. I get to Africa, I'm there for about a week, I finally get online, and I see Facebook messages from my wife and all the elders going, uh, <clears throat> we're not going to lease it, we've decided to buy it. Makes more sense. And I'm like, I've been gone for a week, what are you guys doing? You know, but uh, it, may, it did make more sense. You know, once you grab the calculator, it did make more sense. You know, and when, I, when you read the book of Nehemiah, you realize a lot of things he did and he went through, we're doing and we're going through right now. One example, you do realize that we're going to have to ask for the exact same things. Exact same things. We're going to have to ask for permission. In this case, it's not King Artaxerxes, it's City of Richmond. We're going to have to get rezoned where we want to go, and they've got some stipulations and some areas and some reasons, and we might need to make some changes. We have to ask for permission. We've been asking you to pray about it now going on three, four weeks. We're also going to have to ask for protection. You go, what is that all about? Right? It's not that it's a, ne- a bad neighborhood. It's very simple. You read this book and you see every time God's people try and proclaim the name of Christ, every time they try to expand God's kingdom, the enemy always counterattacks. Always. We should expect it, we should count on it, and we should be asking even right now for God's protection. Because I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It's just the way he is. And the third thing is provision. You see... If the offer gets accepted, and it may not, but if it gets accepted and the zoning goes through, that last thing starts almost immediately. And here's how it works. If you've been part of a church, typically it's called a building campaign or a capital campaign. And what happens is that the pastor stands up and we have this kind of two, three months of, of me challenging you, hey, help us, help us get some timber. 
Help us pay for the lumber so we can make these renovations. Now, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm looking forward to it because that would mean that we got the building, honestly. Um, Moses did it. David did it. Solomon did it. Nehemiah did it. It's part of my job to challenge you to do that, right? It's called a campaign. Sunday night, the elders met, and we were crafting the counteroffer to send to the seller. And I started to tell them about some of the things I was working on for step three, the campaign that we were going to come up with. And, and it's going to be a campaign, if we get to that, that honors God and honors people. This is not going to be a twist-your-arm kind of a deal. I will challenge you, but it will not be give what Dave wants you to give. It'll be you pray to God, you give what he wants you to give. So I don't mind challenging our congregation, but this is what an elder said to me, and it bothered me. Bothered me like I went home bothered about this comment. And this is what they said. You know what, David? No matter what we do in this campaign, no matter how hard we try to make sure that it's tactful and respectful and it honors God and honors people, no matter how how we do it and what we do, you do realize that there will be some people that get all upset and leave the church. And I was like, really? He's like, really? One thing can make someone happy and can make someone upset. Same thing. So, for example, David, you're going to be talking about the building. Some people will go, here he goes again. You know, it's been like three weeks in a row talking about the building and the financing. We need your help. Here we go. I'm upset. I'm out of here. And another person will look at exactly what you're doing and think to themselves, you know what? If we want to get into this building, he's got to talk more about this. We've got to bring this up more often. Same thing, completely different responses. We're going to produce at some point in time some materials and hand them to you and say, read it over and, you know, so, so you know all the details and the finances and if it gets to that. And some people will look at the brochure and go, have you seen this brochure? Look at how slick it is. What are we paying all, the, all this money for brochures? Can't we just save that money and put it in the building? This is stupid. I'm out of here. And other people will look at the same material and go, you know what? If this really is from God, we need to put some energy and effort into it. I mean, look at this brochure. We've got to put some more effort into this. What is going on here? Same thing. I'm out of here. Some people are like, here he goes again. Another 49er and cat joke. I'm out of here. You know, I'm done. It's like no matter what we do, someone's going to get upset. See, someone's leaving right now. There they go. <laughs> I want to make a deal with you. You know, it bothered me. I'm like, what? No matter what we do, someone's going to get upset. And he goes, yeah. And now I'm, I got a, enough thick skin that we'll live with it, right? But I want to make a deal with you. Here's the deal I want to make with you. Our time is a little compressed. By that I mean, it's not that we haven't done our homework. It's that really, we felt that God kind of dropped this in our lap. And we're like, ah, we're okay. Let's go for it. You know? And it's based upon sound thinking. Um... But because our time is compressed, I'm just telling you now, as hard as, as we work, as much as we try, there may be something that isn't said quite the right way or doesn't come out quite the right way. And if that happens, here's, here's what I want you to do. You're part of the deal. Trust me. Give the leaders the benefit of the doubt. You know us. If you've been here for a while, you know us. We're not the kind of church that is always begging for money and twisting arms and playing those games. We just aren't. You know us. So if something comes across as a little bit uh, for you, just trust me and give the leaders the benefit of the doubt. Now, if you're willing to do that, here's what I'm willing to do. For the next three months, I will suspend 
All 49 are jokes. That's my deal to you. That's my deal to you. Yeah, some of you are really happy. Uh, see, now Raider Nation right here is not happy. Okay, we had some booze. Just, if you're Raider Nation, it's just for three months, okay? And then when the season starts, I'll get them again, okay? So all I'm saying is let's be mature about this process. Let's stay united. Okay, last couple points. If you got a tough job, move ahead in spite of your fears, okay? Develop a thoughtful plan. Point number three, write this down. Begin to strategize, begin to organize. Begin to strategize, begin to organize. Now, this is when you want to kind of have a Bible in your hand because I can't put all the verses up there, so bring one or grab one from the back table next week. There's three things he's going to emphasize in these verses. Let's put them up there, Cheryl. So if you know I have a Bible, you can see. This is what he's going to bring up. Let me read verses 11 to 16 and see if you can see these things emphasized over and over again. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night. By the way, why did he wait three days? Just a little tangent. Why is he waiting? If this is such a big project, what is he waiting for? Commentators say he's doing one of three things. Either one, he's doing more praying. Two, he's doing more planning. Or more likely, step number three, he's just tired and he's taking a nap. Remember, he just traveled a thousand miles. There is a principle here. Here's the principle. Don't ever make big decisions when you're tired. Don't do that, because typically those are not good decisions. Now, I'm not saying don't work when you're tired. The reality is sometimes you've got to do that, don't you? You've got to work when you're tired. But don't make big decisions when you're tired. So Nehemiah has enough sense to say, I'm going to rest a little bit, right? And then these three things get emphasized. I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. I set out during the night with a few men. I mean, think about this. No candles, no flashlights, no street lights. He's going out during the night. I had told, I had not told anyone what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards Jackal Well and the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not room enough for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night. Carefully examining the wall, finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone, nor what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or others who would be doing the work. Now here's the question. Why the secrecy? Why is he going out by night? Why is he not telling anybody that he's carefully examining the walls? Why has, has nobody known what he's up to? No one knows what he's up to. He hasn't told the Jews. He hasn't told the priests. He hasn't told the, the, the contractors that he's going to be working. He hasn't told anybody. Why the secrecy? Now, the principle here simply is that because sometimes it's more strategic to not say anything. You have to wait. Sometimes it's more strategic to not say anything about what you're trying to pull off. Someone sent me an email about another guy who, who did pretty much the same thing. Okay, Let me just read it to you. It's a quick story. It says, a, a city boy named Kenny moved to the country and bought a donkey from an old farmer for $100. The farmer agreed to deliver the donkey the next day. The next day, the farmer drove up and said, I am so sorry, I have bad news. The donkey died. Kenny replied, well, then just give me my money back. Farmer replied, I, I can't do that. I already spent the money. So Kenny said, okay, just, just unload the dead donkey. The farmer asked, what are you, you going to do with a dead donkey? Kenny said, I'm going to raffle him off. You can't raffle off a dead donkey. 
Sure, I can, said Kenny. Watch me. I just won't tell anybody that he's dead. A month later, the farmer met up with Kenny and asked, what happened with that dead donkey? Kenny said, I raffled him off. I sold 500 tickets at $2 apiece and made a profit of $898. Farmer asked, did anyone complain? Kenny said, yep, just the guy who won. I gave him back his $2. (laughs) Then it ends and it says, P.S., Kenny grew up and eventually became the chairman of Enron. So there's an idea there for you. (laughs) Now, Nehemiah is maybe not being quite as sneaky as Kenny. He's doing the same thing. I'm not telling anybody. Here's the principle. The principle is that it's easier to kill an idea than get it off the ground. It's easier to kill an idea than get it off the ground. I mean, it's happening right here. There's a reason I haven't given you all the numbers yet. Because I don't have them yet. What's the point of me kind of throwing stuff out there that if I don't know? It's easier to kill an idea than get it off the ground. It, here's what Nehemiah is doing in this. He's just, you know, lining up his ducks, as we call it. He's being smart. Sometimes you don't start sharing with everybody what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. That's not the smartest thing to do. Not yet. Be strategic. Be shrewd. Even Jesus said the people of this world are more shrewd than my own people. Be more strategic. In some cases, you have to be more business-minded. Be smart about this, right? Strategize and organize. Last point. You want to accomplish something big. You want to repair what is broken. You have to build a team. You have to build a team and motivate them. Now, i got to tell you, this works for a church, this works for a business, it works for a family, it works for an individual. You see, if something is really broken, more often than not, you need help. The church, that makes sense. We want to accomplish something big, like buy another building. We need everyone's help. That makes sense. But even if it's something small, individual, and personal, the Bible will say something like that we are to carry each other's burdens. In other words, have have the honesty to tell a few other people that care about you and can encourage you, can help you, can keep you accountable. Build your team, okay? And then figure out a way to motivate them. Last couple verses, let me just read them off the screen. Then I said to them, Nehemiah, Uh, Nehemiah speaking, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. And they replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. At the end of of the chapter, Nehemiah said, the God of heaven will give us success. Now there's three things he's doing here with his team. Okay. The first thing he's doing is being honest about the problem. He's being honest about the tr- problem. I want you to notice. He tells them about the trouble we're in. The city is in ruins. The gates have been burned. We're in disgrace. Well, that's kind of negative. No, it's honest. It's honest. At the end of the chapter, he says, you know, we, 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 I, 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 we're hopeful, though. I'm honest, but hopeful. Have the courage, especially if you're in a leadership role. Have the courage to state the truth. Whether you're a leader in your family, whether you're a leader in your church, whether you're a leader at your work or at your school, have the courage to state the truth. Because the the reality is most people around you already know the truth. And when you state it, you actually gain credibility. You know what? We're in trouble. We're in trouble. We got a lot of work. Don't trick your team. 
Tell, tell them the truth. We got a big job ahead of us. We got some major issues and problems. I, I, I'm going to be honest, but I'm going to be hopeful. I think we can do it. Which is the second thing. He's not only honest about the problem, he identifies with the problem. I want you to notice what, what he says over and over again. We have to do this. Come on, let us rebuild this. We don't want to live this way anymore. Uh, together, us, us, we can all start rebuilding. God will give us success. He doesn't stand before him and goes, man, you guys really screwed up. You guys really got to get your act together. This is all your fault. By the way, little hint, if you try that in a marriage, it doesn't go over very well. It's always a we issue. It's always an us problem. Now, the reality is that Nehemiah hasn't lived in Jerusalem. But very quickly, he identifies with the problem. This is something we need to work on. We need to accomplish. This is something that together we can do. He's honest about the problem. He identifies with the problem. But the last part, and this is the most important part about the whole chapter, he he shares the solution to the problem. You see, this morning is not just an organizational seminar that we could be having at any company around the Bay Area. Now, we are a church, and the reason we meet is to talk about the one, Jesus Christ, who's already done the job for us on the cross so that what is broken in our life can be restored. We're here because of God. We're here because of Jesus. And Nehemiah, through all his planning and all his organization, has not forgotten it, and neither should we. And he wants to make sure to let everyone understand, you know what? God's gracious hand has been upon me. He's bailed us out before he will do it again this time. God of heaven will give us success. He'll give us success. You know, one of the things that I've been, as I've been talking to a lot of people, other pastors have been saying, you know what, Dave, if you want this building thing to work, there's two kind of motivations you're going to have to give people. External motivation and internal motivation. Here's what internal motivation sounds like. This is when I tell you how the new building will benefit you. You guys are going to love the new building. The chairs are going to be so much more comfortable, you'll be comfortable. Everybody will have parking. You're not going to have to park like at the Chinese restaurant. Everybody will have parking. There will be a bigger area for donuts. We'll have a little cafe. It's going to be great. You'll get to meet more people. Internal motivation, how you will benefit. External motivation is not how you will benefit, but others you will, that will benefit, and you should, you should get some credit for that. So this is how it would sound. I know you don't have children. But you know, when we get the new building, we're going to have a bigger nursery. We're going to have a safer preschool. We're going to have a, you know, a kid land. It's going to be great. They're going to love it. I know you don't have kids, but for their benefit, we need to do that. That's external motivation. But one of the things that God's word reminds us of and Nehemiah, Nehemiah reminds us of is that the ultimate motivation is not internal motivation. It's not external motivation. It's eternal motivation. Honestly, whether it's the building or your life, or your work, your career, I don't care what it is. It's not just about what you're going to get out of the deal. It's not just about what others around you are going to get out of the deal. It's about the name of Jesus Christ being glorified. That's the deal. In your marriage, and in your family, in your finances, in your health, in this church, at your work, that's the deal. I want to end by asking you the same question we've been talking about now for a couple weeks. What's broken in your life? What needs to be fixed? The the tagline for our series is surviving. That's step one. You know how when when you're drowning, you just got to survive. But then the second word is overcoming. 
You're starting to, stop, starting to bounce back. But I want us to get to the last word, thriving. To come back, to repair the walls, to fix the gates. What needs, what, what needs to be repaired in your life? This week, here's what we've learned. Push through your fears. I, I know it makes you a little worried. I know you're a little nervous. Push through. See what happens. Then start to get, to get put together a plan. Start to get organized. That's important. And then the last thing, don't skip this last step. Get a team. Get some people that will help you, that will encourage you. Maybe they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll shard encourage you or they'll give you wisdom, whatever it is. But get a team. Do those things and watch what God begins to do. Now, every once in a while, I'll have someone say to me, you know, Dave, I show up to church and I get all pumped up again. And then I go back and, and I discourage because, you know, my walls don't get repaired. And I feel like sometimes I get false hope. Well, let's just be honest. If you're wanting to repair a broken marriage, it's not all on you. There's this other person called your spouse, and they not need to be in the deal. If you're trying to fix your family or your, your career or something else, sometimes it's not all on you. So you can be motivated to change something, but dependent on other people to also want to contribute to the issue and to the problem. Nevertheless, try anyway. Why? Because the process of restoration, of fixing something that is in disrepair in your life, if nothing else, it starts with your own restoration. So let God work through that process, and you never know what he's going to do. You never know. Let's stand. Let's close in a word of prayer. I'll let you get going. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you've taught us. Um, I want to thank you for what you've taught us as a church. And as we've talked about, there's all these kind of similar things that we're going through. And we just pray that we would apply them, do the best we can, Father. We will continue to follow your lead. As the door remains open and if it closes, we will go in a different direction and trust you. But Father, as we wrap up, I want to pray for each individual here. Father, the reality is, is every single one of us has something in our lives that's, that's probably broken and needs to be repaired. If we're honest, we've got walls that are torn down. We've got gates that have been burned in our life. Father, maybe it was because of something that happened a long, long time ago. Someone did or said something to us. It's easier for us to just forget about it, bury it, and not do anything. For some of us, it's something that just happened the last month, the last year. Father, regardless of what it is, first of all, we just want to thank you that you're the kind of God that doesn't leave us where we're at, but you come alongside us and try and help us rebuild what is broken in our lives. Father, I pray that you, you would encourage people here that are hurting. They've got issues going on right now, and, and they feel things are broken. I, I pray that you would give them your hope. But Father, I also pray, this morning we've looked at some very, very practical things. Father, give us the discipline to follow through on them, to push through our fears, to come up with a plan and goals and a clear mission and, and, and be, be strategic as we get organized. Help us do that, Father. That is, that is a spiritual exercise that can make a difference. But Father, remind us that being followers of you doesn't mean that we are to be Lone Ranger Christians, that you've called us to live in community with other people that we call friends. Friends that also worship and follow you. Friends that can help us in this process. Friends that can come alongside us and help us rebuild our walls. Father, thank you so much for this book and what you've taught us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. 
If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.